Hi, this is Tzvi Freeman for Chabad.org. You may have read some of my articles on the site or seen some of my books. But for now, I want you to just sit back and let me turn your world on its head. Every year on the 10th day of the Hebrew month of Shvat, Chabadniks gather around while an appointed person presents a mimer. What's a mimer? Well, there's an article on our site at Chabad.org, What is a Mimer? So you could read that or just continue listening and experience one for yourself. But the particular mimer that's presented on the 10th of Shvat is a special one. It was prepared by its author, the sixth Rebbe of Chabad, Rabbi Yosef Shitzak Schneerson, call him the Friedrich Rebbe, meaning the previous Rebbe, or the Rebbe Rayatz, that's an acronym for his name. So it was prepared by him to be studied on that day, the 10th of Shvat, that was the year Tov Shin Yud, 1950, because that was the yard site, the day of passing of his grandmother. And as it transpired, that day was also his day of passing. So the first Rabbi of Chabad, Rabbi Shnei Zaman of Liadi, explained in a letter, I'm quoting now, all the effort of a person for which his soul toiled during his lifetime becomes revealed at the time of his passing. So this mimer then has to be seen as a summary of the previous Rebbe's entire life, as well as his guidance and teaching for the next generation. And indeed, his successor, the Rebbe, Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson, wrote within the year of passing like this. He said, I would like to suggest that we all commit to memory the mimer entitled Basilagani, the one we're going to learn now, the one we're talking about. It's committed to memory in its entirety or in part. And in times of confusion or of doubt, we should think it through. It's not the quantity that counts, he wrote. What matters is that we connect ourselves to the source. Mastering the mimer will nourish our connection with its author, not only when we review it, but at other times as well. Our minds will be engaged and filled with the Rebbe's teachings. So later, the Rebbe asked that the five chapters of the mimer be recited publicly each year on the art site, some of it on the eve, some in the morning, the remainder at the end of the day. The Maimar was actually one section of a series of four Maimar, each with five chapters. So beginning on the very first uh, first yard site, the Rebbe explained one chapter of the series at length, and he completed all 20 chapters, and that was repeated for the following 20 years. So now this translation and unfolding I call, I'm calling it an, uh, not just a translation, but an unfolding of the first chapter. It's meant to, in part, to assist in that public presentation that occurs each year. It's also meant to assist the reader to find that connection that will nourish our souls. But first, so a note about the presentation, how you're supposed to present a mimer, any mimer, whether it's spoken or written by a Rebbe of Chabad. So Rabbi Yosef Isaac Schneerson, the same Rabbi Riyatz, 
wrote in a letter to Rabbi Shlomo Shachaim Kesselman. He was the Meshpia counselor in Kfar Chabad. And he wrote this letter in 1948. He wrote, You wrote that when delivering a mimer in public, it's necessary to be precise with the original wording, to learn it exactly the way it was said, or to repeat it exactly as written. This is a mistake. As I've stated earlier, when we say that you have to preserve the original words of the teacher, we mean that you shouldn't add in useless explanatory commentary. Rather, deliver the mimer in its style and format, and whenever an idea requires explanation, do as our rabbis of blessed memory advised when they said, Torah may be poor in one place and wealthy in another. So he's explaining to him, in other words, that you do have to add explanation, but add in the explanation from another mimer, from elsewhere in Hasidus, not your own, something you've made up yourself. And then it's still considered to be the original mimer. So in the letter to Rabbi Shimon Wozner, was a great Torah scholar in Israel, in which the previous Rebbe strongly encourages the recitation of, a, of Maimarim in public, so similar, he wrote, the manner, the manner of delivery should be like a public talk with clear reasoning and explanation, just like someone lecturing on a Torah topic that they know well and explaining it before a large gathering and congregation. So that's the approach I've taken in translating, unfolding this classic minor. Every idea that calls for explanation is unfolded and laid out as clearly as space allows using explanation borrowed from other Maimarim of Chabad. And additionally, I've attempted to use simple and natural language as much as possible. So that way I hope well, to ease the burden on a reader already bombarded with concepts that are not easy to understand, even for those familiar with them. Okay, let's get going. Chapter 1. That's what we're going to do now. No, chapter 1. In the Song of Songs... God lovingly says to the Jewish people, I came into my garden, my sister, my bride. So the sister and bride who he's addressing, that's us. But where's the garden? When did he come there? The Medrash Rabbah identifies the location as planet Earth and the day as the day the tabernacle was inaugurated. On that day, God's presence came down to Earth, so to speak. And the Medrash points out that it doesn't just say a garden, but my garden. That means he considers this world to be his special personal garden, something like a private place you might have in your garden for relaxing, enjoying, and just being yourself. It's one place that when you're there, you're 100% there because it's the place where you most want to be. In other words, the Medrash says, this lowly world and not some spiritual heaven was the place where God most desired to be when it all began. We call that state of God being very present, the Shekhinah. For example, you might say, I visited Jerusalem and you could feel the Shekhinah there. God is everywhere, but his presence rests, meaning godliness can be experienced in some places more than others. And originally, the main place of the Shekhinah was in this lowest of worlds. So what happened? The Medrash explains, 
Adam and Eve committed the sin of the tree of knowledge. And God's presence could no longer be felt in the world in the same way as before the sin. The Shekhinah left our world for the first heaven, a more spiritual world. It's not a world that's distant in space. It's, it's right here, but it's not the world we live in. And more on that later. Then Cain sinned, and the Shekhinah went even further away to the second heaven. When the generation of Enosh started worshipping stars and angels, the Shekhinah went up from the second heaven to the third. And things kept on going in that direction until God's presence was far and distant from our world, and you would have to rise all the way up to the seventh heaven to feel you were in touch with him. With this, the Medrash explains how Adam and Eve heard, it says, the sound of God walking in the garden after they sinned. That's kind of puzzling. God walks in a garden and it makes a sound. So the Medrash points out that it doesn't actually say walking. That would be mehalech in Hebrew. But the word there is not mehalech, it's mithalech, which is more like someone climbing up a steep flight of stairs very deliberately, one step after the other. In other words, Adam and Eve could feel that they had started a chain reaction of failures, as if God was leaving the garden for higher and higher places. So following all these disasters, seven tzaddikim. Tzaddikim are people whose lives are driven by their love of God. Seven tzaddikim brought the Shekhinah from the seventh heaven back down to earth. Abraham merited to bring the Shekhinah from the seventh heaven to the sixth. Isaac brought the Shekhinah from the sixth to the fifth, and so on, until along came Moses, who was the seventh. The seventh, says the Medrash, is always special. So Moses brought the Shekhinah all the way back down to earth. The main place of God's presence was in the tabernacle. It's called the Mishkan, and later in the temple, the Bet HaMikdash in Jerusalem. Like it says, they shall make for me a Mikdash, which means a holy place, and I will dwell within them. So notice there's a nuance there of language. It doesn't say, I will dwell within it, within the Mikdash. It says, in, within them. So God is saying that by the people building and maintaining this Mikdash, this holy place, he will dwell within the individuals involved, each and every one of them. So the Madrash concludes by explaining one more verse along these lines. It says that Tzaddikim will inherit the land and they shall dwell forever upon it. The land, the Madrash says, refers to the Garden of Eden, meaning to the ultimate perfected world as it will be once we fixed up this whole mess that started in the original Garden of Eden. So the verse is explaining why the tzaddikim will inherit this renovated Garden of Eden, because they are the ones who get us all back there by bringing down the Shekhinah, referred to as here as he who dwells forever, exalted and holy. That's the language of the Medrash, bringing back down to this lowly world. So in short, this is the meaning of God saying, I came to my garden. He means to say, that this is his most personal space, the place that was his main place from the beginning. Because to begin with, the main place of God's presence was in this lowest world. The takeaway from all this so far is that the ultimate meaning behind the creation of every world that exists 
Was God's desire to be at home in this, the lowest of all worlds? What does that mean? It means for godliness to shine openly on earth through the work of us human beings, to our wrestling down and transforming the loneliness and darkness of our own selves and of the world around us. In other words, a divine soul, a breath of God, will descend below to a physical world and become clothed within a body and an animal soul. They're going to block and negate the light of this divine breath. And then, despite all, this divine soul will purify the body and the animal soul and even its part of the world. That's the meaning behind absolutely everything that ever happens or ever comes to exist. And that's the point behind they shall make for me a mikdash and I will dwell within them, within every Jewish person. How does it work? Like we said, through the hard work of separating the good from the bad, which happens through us taming, suppressing and transforming everything we have to deal with. In the Zohar, all the forces of darkness in our world and inside us are lumped together under the label, under the label Sitra Achra. That means the other side. Perhaps more accurately, the side of otherness. It's, it's called that because these forces act as though they are others to their own maker. He gives us life at every moment, but we somehow feel as though we live for ourselves. Oneness is holiness. Otherness is the opposite. When we feel that sense of otherness, that's when all har- harmony falls apart. Everything becomes atomized. Each life is out for its own self and thereby destroys itself. Out of that otherness comes every destructive urge inside us. Otherness is a lie. The Sitra Achra is the biggest lie in the universe. And the way to expose that lie is by not submitting to those urges. Instead, the Sitra Achra has to submit to the good within us. In simple terms, most of the time that means resisting many of our own basic instinctual impulses to channel them in meaningful, divine-centered directions. Okay, now that may look like a mundane, take-out-the-garbage sort of personal housekeeping, not particularly spiritual. There seem to be far more noble tasks, like bringing more light into the world, tuning into the wonders of divine wisdom, or praising God all day like the angels. But the Zohar says quite the opposite. The Zohar says, when the Sitra Achra is suppressed, God's glory rises in all the worlds. So to understand what an achievement that is, read that carefully. What does in all the worlds mean? It tells us we're talking about an occurrence that's not specific to any particular space or plane of reality, physical, spiritual, or otherwise. It's something that encompasses everything and changes everything equally. In fact, we call this the encompassing light, a kind of divine energy that shines the same in all worlds, physical and spiritual. So to explain that and why that's so wondrous, we first have to understand that there are more worlds than the one we live in. Worlds exist on many levels. So here's a way of understanding what these worlds are. You know, in the verse, my soul blesses God. So the rabbis say on that, that just like your soul fills your body, 
So God fills the entire universe. There's a difference, of course. Your body was there before a soul comes into it. There's a body and a soul. There's a kind of dichotomy, a dualism there, even though the body and the soul become one. But in a way, the body is not created, not generated by the soul. Whereas when God fills the entire universe, at the same time, he is isifying, he's bringing it into being, he's generating the actual material that he's filling at the same time. But let's, let's work with that, with this soul, the psyche that fills you. There are, think of the many layers of your own soul, the consciousness that fills each layer when you're engaged in healthy creative activities. At one level, you're conscious of where your feet are going and what your hands are doing with the physical space, objects of your world. So that's one layer. Most of the time, it doesn't take much of your consciousness. Then there's a much richer, higher world you live in, socializing with people. That obviously takes a whole new level of consciousness. And going yet higher and more inward, when you sit alone, contemplating some big and inspiring idea, you blast off to an entirely different world. And then, let's say that, that idea inspires some mighty emotions, totally changes the way you see things. Now we're talking about the world of your inner identity, the inner you. Yet even higher, if you can know what it is that you really desire in life, to channel that divine spark inside you and light up the world, there you would touch the very essence of who you are. Let's say someone could travel through your psyche. Where would they find you shining in there? In that part, in that level of you that's engaged in doing things? Or in the part of you that's engaged in thinking? Or maybe in your deep emotions? Or your deep hidden, inner hidden desires? Which inner world are you found in the most? Now think of the universe sort of like as God's psyche. The universe is having layers somewhat similar to those layers within you, only that in each layer exists an entire world of countless intelligent beings living on an entirely different plane of existence than in another world. There's another important similarity as well. Your outward behavior reflects what's going on deeper inside you at a deeper level. And in much the same way, everything happening in the lower worlds is a dim reflection of what's going on in the higher worlds. It's like a, a chain reaction traveling downward, dimming and diminishing at each step, but retaining the same characters, themes, and events. Okay, but let's get back now to the quality of light in each world. By the way, if you know the Mimer, you'll know that that whole section I just, to explain to you about worlds, I just added that in. But I felt... That's okay. It's crucial because if you have no clue of worlds, you're going to think I'm talking about some world past Pluto or something. So uh, that's necessary. And the explanation I gave you is the classic explanation provided in Tanya and, and the classic works of Chabad Hasidus. So I added that in. Now let's get back to the mimer. The quality of light in each world. There's no comparison between the quality of the light in the higher worlds and that of the lower worlds. In the higher worlds, light shines openly. In the lower worlds, not only the light, in other words, 
light meaning like that consciousness inside you is your light. This is God's light. So in the lower worlds, this light doesn't shine so openly. In some of them, the light comes in a hidden way. And there are many levels in that as well. There's a verse that alludes to all this. It says, well, God's saying, my hand established the earth and my right hand spreads out the heavens. So there's a medrash explains that verse as meaning this. God stretched out, this is the medrash, God stretched out his right hand and created the heavens. He stretched out his left hand and created the earth. So that now that's typical of a medrash to say something very profound using very human terms. Every medrash has to be decoded to understand its, me- its message. So think of what does right hand mean? What does left hand imply? Your right hand is stronger. It's your stronger hand. Use it when you want to put all your strength into something. When you do something with your right hand, you're not holding anything back. And that's exactly what the Medrash means when it says that God's right hand spread out the heavens. The heavens are the higher worlds. There are things that exist in a a right-hand sort of way. Light shines there unfiltered and openly, and it's a light that hides nothing. The earth means the lower worlds. There things are in a left-handed sort of way. The light there has to shine through many shades and filters. And as well, the light itself is a hidden kind of light. And although there's an infinite spectrum of worlds, they fall into four levels. There's a verse that alludes to these four levels of worlds. It says, All that is called in my name and to my honor, I have created it, I have formed it, I have even made it. So these are the four worlds, emanation, creation, formation, action. There's a huge distinction between the light in the lower three worlds and the light in the world of emanation. The world of emanation is a world that is all about hidden potentials coming out into the open. In Hebrew, it's called atzilut, or we would say atzilus, if you're speaking Ashkenazis. But we'll call it atzilut. Atzilut is from the world etzelo, meaning right up next to God. It's also related to hatzala, which means not hatzala, but hatzala, meaning taking a sample of something. It's like a, a sample. Atzilut is like a sample of the infinite light that's beyond that world. Because atzilut, even though it's called a world, it's still considered one of the infinite light worlds. Atzilut is somewhat comparable to how your own soul shrinks itself into being capable of perception, intelligence, and emotion. It's it's not the raw, undefinable you anymore, but it's nothing other than you. So in a similar way, Atzilut is still godliness. World of creation, on the other hand, is the first instance of something from nothing. It's the point where the focus is no longer on the light, but on the creation. Why is it called something from nothing? God's not nothing. And there was a whole world called Atzilut beforehand. But to the world of creation, everything that came before is a nothingness. 
even if you understand intellectually that you were just created now and, and every moment you're being created again and again, that's not your reality. You can't even begin to imagine a world in which you do not exist. So you feel like you've been around forever, which is why everything in the world of creation feels itself as something other than God. That's how hidden the light is. At Silo, it's not that way. The meaning of that, 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 That's the meaning of all that is called upon in my name and to my honor. Name, your name isn't a thing of substance at all. It certainly isn't a chunk of you. It doesn't even contain any information about you. But when someone calls your name, they're calling you, all of you. That's why God calls the world of, of Atzilut my name. Because Atzilut, despite being a world and despite being a, generated entirely by nothing more than a glimmer of divine light, it's still one with God. So the light can shine there openly. Not so the lo- three lower worlds. And in the three lower worlds themselves, there are many degrees of openness of the light as it's in the world of creation, in the world of formation, and in action. However, but all this is talking about the divine light that comes to give life to the world, to all these worlds and to everything they contain. That's an inside type of light because it enters inside each creation according to how much light that creation needs and what it can handle. It's the light that gives life to each creature. But the light that's totally beyond anything to do with worlds, higher worlds, lower worlds, they're all the same to this light. And so it shines just the same in all of them. Like we mentioned above, we call it the light that encompasses all worlds. So that's what the Zohar means when it says, in all the worlds. Its light shines in all the worlds, meaning when this light is brought in, it doesn't have to measure itself according to the place it's entering. It's totally beyond all that. It's so beyond that the world of emanation, the world of action, and all the worlds in between are all the same for it. So it enters in such a way that it shines in all the worlds equally. How do you get that light to enter the universe? You do the hard work of separating the good from the bad through suppressing and transforming the darkness of this world. That's what it means when the sitra achra is suppressed, that when anybody manages with hard work to bring down the sitra achra, to wrestle it down and transform darkness into light, then we get the ultimate light. Because the ultimate light is the light that comes from darkness. Because when darkness is transformed into light, It shines all the way down to the lowest places. And it shines down to the lowest place just as it is in the highest place. It's the light that shines in all worlds equally. This is the meaning of when the sitra achra is suppressed, God's glory rises in all the worlds. A light is introduced to the universe that is totally beyond everything and so encompasses everything, all the worlds equally. It shines on earth, just like it shines in the highest places. To sum up, that's the meaning of, they shall make for me a mikdash and I will dwell amongst them, within each and every Jewish person. And it happens through the work of wrestling down the darkness so it can be transformed into light. From this comes the ultimate form of light. Like it says, God's 
glory rises in all the worlds. The encompassing light shines openly everywhere. And here's the summary. The main place of the Shekhinah is in the lowest world. The meaning behind creating all worlds is for God to be at home in the lowest world. And this is done through suppressing and transforming the Sitra Achra, which brings in this encompassing light. And this light is the same in all worlds.